I had it down to a science where I would volunteer to go to the grocery store. I would get cash back at the register. So it, there's no record of of me buying anything from the liquor store. And then I'd buy a pint of vodka and then I'd buy two things of vitamin water, like Gatorades, and I'd drink them down to the label. And then I'd fill it up with the vodka. I'd seal them up. I'd put them on my bag. I'd throw away the vodka bottle. And then right before I got home, I would chug one of the vodkas, the vitamin waters with vodka straight down. I'd keep the next one for the next day. And it was just a cycle and it just kept going on and on. I would get stuck in my head and it would be my own problems. And the only way I could escape it was through alcohol. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast, episode 193. My name is Janet Gorant. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last eight years, we've helped thousands of people to do just that. And we created Tribe Sober because we know from experience that it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. You need to find a new tribe. Social norms are so powerful and that's why connecting with others on the same path will keep you on track and inspire you to keep going. So at Tribe Sober we're all about community. It's a community where everyone strives for an alcohol-free lifestyle and many of our members are already thriving in their alcohol-free lives and inspiring others. Each week, we feature a community voice, just to give you a flavor of the awesomeness of our tribe. When people get into a dark place with uh, you know, alcohol, they tend to isolate themselves. And the opposite of that is a community. And the tribe is an unbelievably great community for me. I, I'm able to get a lot of a lot out of the tribe, and I I try to put some something back into it, and that's why I try to attend as much as I can uh, the uh, the Zoom cafes and the comments on WhatsApp. You know, the tribe gave me a place to be around like-minded people and hear their stories and get inspired by you know people have a cry when someone's really struggling but really understand that there are people out there that are you know are going through this so if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe my guest today is ben tough in 2012 ben decided to quit drinking and to take up swimming he became a long-distance swimmer and is featured in a documentary called How I Swam My Way Out of the Bottle. 
I began by asking Ben to introduce himself. My name is Ben Tuff, and I live in Vermont, USA. And I was a boarding school teacher for 21 years, up until this past February, when I quit that job. And now I am working on finishing my movie and my documentary. And then I'm also working on getting in front of as many students, kids, adults as possible to spread the word about addiction, what it means to be around those addicted, how to recognize it, and how to ask for help. Wow, that, that's wonderful. There is such a need for that in schools. It wasn't until much later in life that I realized just how bad alcohol was for me. And I think if I'd learned that at school, then I'm not saying I wouldn't have drunk, but it would have been there in my subconscious. But the fact that nobody tells you anything and it's so normalized means that we all just start drinking because everyone else is drinking. And when you're young, you just want to be like everybody else. <laughs> well done, you. And get in those schools. Tell them everything. Let's talk about you when you were a child. I gather you were quite anxious. Uh, I saw a podcast you did with someone and you said that you were a bit of a hypochondriac. You thought you were going to get cancer or you'd got cancer. And so much so that your mum took you to a, a shrink. <laughs> Tell us what kind of age these anxieties came to you at. Yeah, so for, for me, it actually all started. I was always anxious. I, I don't remember a time in my life when I wasn't anxious. I'm, I'm the youngest of six kids. I have an identical twin brother. We were the free reign kids <laughs> at the end. And for me growing up, it was what second grade that one of my dear friends was diagnosed with bladder cancer. And he had to have his bladder removed and from that day on until 11 years ago when I got sober, anything that was wrong with me, I was convinced was cancer or something that was going to kill me. As I internalized these things, I would have these panic attacks. I didn't know what they were at the time. To me, I just thought them as heart attacks or really deep-rooted malaise, and I didn't know how to deal with them. I, th I think I was about 12 years old when my mom said, okay, Ben, enough is enough. If you have one more of these panic attacks and we have to go to the hospital, I am going to take you to a psychiatrist. So it was a threat. It wasn't like, listen, let's work through this. This will help you. It was, we are going to do this and we're going to scare you straight as if what I was going through wasn't normal and that there wasn't a way to deal with it. It was just mind over matter. And, and that was one of the phrases that was repeated to us as kids. It's mind over matter. Just remember mind over matter. And it can work to a certain extent, but it, didn't work for me. And I think my mom found the scariest looking psychiatrist in all of Atlanta and brought me to him. 
He was 75 years old, big, thick glasses. I didn't understand a word he was saying. And I was like, okay, I am not going to do this. I'm not going to talk about when I am having these fears, these anxieties. Instead, I'll just keep them to myself. And, you know, that's what I did. And I found that when I turned 16 and 17 and we started to drink on the weekends with our friends, I found that those anxieties disappeared for a very short time during the evenings, drinking the alcohol. And that would last until the next morning when they were just exacerbated uh, by the hangover. Again, we were young, so we weren't getting super hungover like I was getting 14 years ago. And at that point, my anxiety was through the roof. And I had given myself ulcers. Everything uh, about my existence was so fraught in anxiety. And I really didn't find the freedom from this until 11 years ago when I went to rehab and I met my psychiatrist, uh, Rocky, and he he said, why are you poisoning yourself? Exactly. Look at your liver Mm. and look at your liver enzymes. Why are you killing yourself? And I said, I don't know. Like, I'm not meaning to, but I don't know how to get away from these feelings. And I don't know how to get outside of my head. And I don't know how to shut it all down. And I don't know how to feel better about myself when I'm in the lowest of the lows. And when I'm really like excited and happy in summertime and the sun's out, I feel like that's also an excuse for me to drink. So I don't know. I don't know the answers. And he said, one of the answers is sitting right in front of you and and you're bipolar and you've been bipolar since a very young age. It's not just something that's evolved over time, but this is something that we're going to deal with right now. And... I started doing CBT and DBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and dialectical behavioral therapy in rehab. And so I was in a dual diagnosis program, which was covering my head part and and what was going on in my brain and the imbalance there with the bipolar. And then it was also at the same time dealing with the alcoholism and why it was that I chose that as my substance of choice and how to eliminate it in the future. Sure. Uh, if only that first psychiatrist had uh, diagnosed you that way and got you on some meds or however it's treated, would have saved you a few years of heartache there, wouldn't it? You had a twin brother. What was going on with him? Was he uh, anxious? So he was anxious, And he wasn't as social as I was. He always had a girlfriend and he was always spending time with his girlfriend, whoever that was at the the time. And he did have OCD tendencies that I didn't have. And from a young age all the way up, he used to have huge separation anxiety from my mother. And he also abused alcohol and he is i think just now he's five and a half years sober i had the privilege of taking him to the same rehab that i went Mm -hmm. to silver hill in southern connecticut and it's been an amazing journey for both of us in sobriety and has opened up so many doors 
when I went to rehab, he went online and he said, what are the chances of an identical twin also being an alcoholic if the the other one is an alcoholic? Mm. And it was like a 99% chance that they predisposed to have those same exact tendencies. And he was like, oh, brother. And he put it on the back burner for a little while, Mm. longer than, than I did. And... Eventually, he saw that was going to be the best move for him, a life of sobriety and and not moderation or anything like that. And that's one piece that people ask me a lot. They're like, okay, now that you have your bipolar totally under control and you're level-headed and, and you can think ahead, did you ever think you could drink again? And the truth is, I don't want to risk it. And why would exactly. I? I have, I tell everyone I am the happiest, most thankful alcoholic on this planet. <laughs> and if I could go around one more time on this mud ball of ours, I would choose to be an alcoholic just the same. Because through sobriety and through this journey, I have learned so much about myself. And... All of that was being covered up, being blurred, and being avoided when I was using alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but can we go back to your drinking story, please? Uh, I think you said you started drinking when you were about 16. Talk us through how it evolved Hmm. and when you started worrying about it. Again... As we were talking a little earlier, the drinking, especially in the South, I find, is so normalized. And there was an unspoken agreement between all the my friends' parents and, and my parents that, okay, we're going to go over to the houses, we're going to drink our beers, we're going to hang out, we're going to just have what would be a normal preparation for college. Because in their eyes, they thought, okay, they're getting ready for college. They're getting ready to to party. And this is a healthy thing, if anything. And so it was a Friday and Saturday night occurrence that we would hang out at someone's house in their basement or someone's house. And then we all got fake IDs probably halfway through our junior year. And we were going to bars and we thought we were cool. And I went to school in Maine. I went to Colby College. And I'm, I'm thankful for that in that my twin brother went to Vanderbilt University, which is fraternities. And a lot of my friends went to University of Georgia, which is like big party scene. And, and for me, it was just a smaller party scene. People worked hard. And they would be in the library each Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then they'd go out a little bit Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And it was a pretty tame scene. But one of the things that I got really good at is I learned how to associate with so many different groups of people. So that on Monday nights, I'd go out with the rugby team. And on Tuesday nights, I'd go out with the baseball team. And on Wednesday nights, I would figure out a way of going out with the hippies and (laughs) on and so forth. And to me, it was just normalizing it all. Yeah, interesting. 
You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. I presume you got into teaching after college. Talk us through your teaching career and how the drinking showed itself then. Yeah, so I became a teacher right out of college. And I found myself going from partying every night, going out every night and socializing every night to being in a dorm of nine boys, five fifth grade boys. So these kids were nine and 10 years old. And then I had four ninth grade boys. So they were 15, maybe 16 years old. And I was in charge of them. I had to make sure that they got their coat and tie every morning, that they brushed their teeth. I had to change their bed. And meanwhile, I'm talking to my brother back in Atlanta, and I'm doing all these things. And he's going out to bars and and hanging out with his buddies and having a real existence. And I'm like, what have I gotten myself into? You were the mommy. Yeah, yes. And I did love it. I really did. I love working with kids. And I'd much rather hang out with kids than adults. I've always been that way. And that won't change. But the idea of having so much responsibility, it was stressful. I I couldn't even take care of myself. And I found that when you're working in this kind of environment, the others around you also feel the same way. And you find outlets. And so on our nights that we weren't being in charge of the kids on our two nights off a week, we would go out and we would go out hard until two or three in the morning. And it was something familiar to me because that's what my college experience was like. So I eased into that. And as time went on and I moved on to another junior boarding school, which I then remained at for about 17 years, I had perfected the idea of working hard and playing hard. And when I say playing hard, I mean drinking hard. And I could associate myself with the younger faculty members and know who was where on which night or what night that we were going to go bowling or what night we were going to go to the bar. And that was my outlet. And it is a very stressful thing to be in charge of 11 seventh grade boys. So 13 year olds. Wow. And I I was so for at least 12 years. And it was a lot having to make sure the... They, they're doing their work, they're not fighting, they're not doing bad things, they're not sneaking out. And it was good for me because it distracted me from my own problems. But when it came time for me to be off, I would get stuck in my head and it would be my own problems. And the only way I could escape it was through alcohol. And I guess it was about 14 years ago I started to sneak some beers here and there on the side. I had a newborn son and 
that was stressful as well. And I had always looked at drinking as a way to relieve stress. Oh, like I need a beer. But suddenly it was like, okay, I need three beers in the basement where no one will see me and I can't get judged for this. And then I will have another four beers, which is more acceptable upstairs. And then after that, it was like, okay, I'm going to get, instead of having a 12-pack of beer in the basement, I now have a 30-pack hidden in the basement that I'm going to have to refill and, and figure it all out. And I just got to the point where I was like, oh, my goodness, I can't do this anymore. Were you worried about your drinking at this point? Did no, I wasn't no. worried about it. It's amazing, isn't it? And, and denial is, yeah, it, it was such a huge part of my existence. Yeah. And I, I didn't want to go there. And I could just put on my blinders mm-hmm. and continue in my way. And it wasn't until about 12 years ago, and I had gone to the liquor store. I had it down to a science where I would volunteer to go to the grocery store. I would get cash back at the register, so it, there's no record of of me buying anything from the liquor store. And then I'd buy a pint of vodka, and then I'd buy two things of vitamin water, like Gatorades, and I'd drink them down to the label. And then I'd fill it up with the vodka. I'd seal them up. I'd put them on my bag. I'd throw away the vodka bottle. And then right before I got home, I would chug one of the vodkas, the vitamin waters with vodka, straight down. I'd keep the next one for the next day. And it was just a cycle. And it just kept going on and on. Your wife, did she know it was going on? My wife had caught me a few times when I was hiding the beers. And then I said, I won't do this anymore. I'm done. I've learned my lesson. And she suspected something wasn't right with me once I'd switched to the vodka, but she didn't know what it was. And I had increased anxiety. I was often not making sense at night. And I had gotten just so good at hiding it that I could get away with it to a certain extent until I couldn't anymore. And it all came tumbling down. So talk to us about that, the rock bottom moment. Yeah. So I found myself having a panic attack It was a Saturday morning, about 10.30. I'd felt awful from the night before, and I was having heart palpitations, and I needed to get out of there. And I said, I need to go to the hospital. So my wife took me to the hospital, and as I was entering into the emergency room, I was in the triage section of the hospital, and... I asked them, I said, well, it's been an hour and a half. It's, it's now 12 o'clock. Why haven't you admitted me to the emergency room to be seen? And I found out from the nurse right then, she said, your blood alcohol is above the legal limit and we can't admit you yet. 
until you sober up a little bit. And I had stopped drinking the night before at nine o'clock at night. And I looked over at my wife and I looked at the, the nurse and it was all over. My secret was done. It was all out. It was time to figure my life out. And my wife said, what? Like, how is that possible? And I said, okay, let's go. I'm ready for rehab. I want to go. I want to go get help. I want to fix my brain. I want to fix my body. I want to fix my habits. I want to do it all. Let's go. And I spent five days in detox and then headed to Silver Hill and spent five weeks at Silver Hill just learning how to be a human in a world that was very foreign to me. So that was really the turning point, wasn't it, going to that rehab? And what about early sobriety? When you came out of, of rehab... How did you cope then? Did you go to lots of AA meetings or have counseling? How did it all work out? Yes. So one of the fortunate things that I've had is that my psychiatrist from my rehab is still my psychiatrist now. And I've been able to maintain that tie and we're very close. He's amazing. I still think he helped save my life. And... At the same time, when I was at, at rehab, we would have these speakers that came in and would say, like threatening us, saying, half of you will not make it. Half of you will relapse. Half of you will do this. And that made me so angry. Yeah. Because who are these people to tell me I'm not going to make it? And so I took that anger and I repurposed it. And I went out into the world ready to dominate my sobriety. And nothing was going to get in the way of that. So along the way, I did do 90 meetings in 90 days. And that was very purposeful and helped me stay accountable and also just helped me learn from others around me and others who also suffered from addiction, not just drinking alcohol, but drug addictions or whatever their substance of choice was. And I would go every day, every morning to the early bird meeting in New Milford, Connecticut. And straight from there, I would go right to the pool and I'd teach myself how to swim. And that was my schedule. Yeah. Yeah. I think it really helps, doesn't it, to have a schedule that's busy so that there's no time to think about drinking. I share your view, Ben, that addiction can be a gift. It certainly was in my case, and it sounds as if it was in yours as well. It's a kind of catalyst, isn't it, to get to know ourselves and really change the course of our, our future And I wondered how and when you came to that view, that conclusion that maybe it wasn't such a bad thing that I became an alcoholic. It was probably day three of being sober and my hand stopped shaking. And I was at an early bird meeting in New Canaan, Connecticut, and I was holding a Dunkin' Donuts coffee. And for the first time in years, 
my hand wasn't shaking. And I was like, so this is what it's all about. And also through the joy that I've been able to have with my family, it's not like a fake joy anymore. When I was drinking, it was this facade that I tried to put on for others, for them, and and for myself. But very quickly, I realized that in sobriety, it was real. They were real feelings. And it's hard sometimes when you have to feel real feelings and they're not the feelings you want them to be. But that's life. And that's why... I keep marching forward because I know that those positive feelings and those positive reactions are just around the corner. Yeah, yeah. We always say that we have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable because that's how we grow. That's where the personal growth comes from, isn't it? Yes, for sure. Let's go into the swimming, please. Talk to us about this swimming Yeah. So when I was in rehab, my first temporary sponsor, which we had to get within our first four days there in order to have a visit with our family, we had to have a sponsor. And at this early bird meeting in New Canaan, I heard this guy speak and he had an Irish accent and he was pretty hardcore. He wasn't messing around. And I had been told by some of the speakers at at the house that I was staying at that when you find a sponsor, you want to find someone who's going to just take you, hold your toes to the fire, be very serious, and get you through those steps as effectively and efficiently as possible. And... I was like, okay, this guy is awesome. He talks about doing triathlons. He's really active. And so after the meeting, I went up to him and I said, "Uh, Ken, do you think that I could learn how to swim? And it was really awkward for me because I needed something. It was like going on a blind date or trying to figure out speed dating or something. Uh, And I was like, oh, and will you also be my sponsor? And he was like, yes, yes, absolutely. I'll be your sponsor. And listen, I taught myself how to swim and I'm not a great swimmer, but you can definitely do it. And if you want to do triathlons, go for it. And so from the day I got out of rehab, I went to the pool and slowly made my way across it. It wasn't pretty. And the next day I went a little bit farther and the next day a little farther And eventually, after three months, I was able to do half a mile without having too much trouble. And I entered my first triathlon. And and that started off a long period of time for me of doing triathlons. I did triathlons for about seven years until... I finally realized that the sport of triathlon wasn't working for me because I'd gotten so competitive. And I realized that no longer was I doing this for myself, but I was doing this for my ego. And I was doing it to beat those people around me. And that's not why I wanted to do this in the first place. So I took a step back and I said, what else could I do? 
And I looked at my training and I said, you know what? Like, I really like swimming because it allows me to surround myself in, in the water. Open water swimming is just so free and I can connect with my higher power. I can do all my thinking out there, do all my processing, and I can just do it for me. And so I signed up for a 12 and a half mile swim around Key West at the lower end of Florida, which is a warm water swim. And I actually did quite well. I got second in my age group. It wasn't really a race. It was just a laid back swim. And from that point on, I just kept swimming. And I guess over the last six years, I've been swimming, doing long distance swims. And that has brought me to the last three years where I've done 19 to 24 mile swims all in one fell swoop. And it's been amazing. Well done, you. And you're 11 years sober, I think, are you? Or is it a little bit more now? It's just a little bit more. Yeah, I had my sober anniversary April 21st. Well, congratulations. Just over 11 years. Congratulations. So talk to us about the documentary. Why are you making the documentary? What's the purpose? Yes. So about a year and a half ago, I was driving across the Everglades. I was working in admissions at a, at a boarding school, and I was going from West Palm Beach to Naples. And we were literally 10 minutes into the Everglades, which is a miserable drive. It's just boring. When I got a call from this guy, Matt Corliss, and he said, I'm a producer. I've worked on lots of movies that you've probably heard of, like The Social Dilemma and Free Solo and Chasing Corals and Chasing Ice. And I was like, wow, this guy's legit. So I met your twin brother at a kind of gathering of people, and he told me about your swimming. And I'm thinking about, if you're into it, making a documentary about it. And I was like, okay, that'll be cool. I have no idea like what it entails. I've never made a movie, but let's do it. And, and we continued to talk about my story and my recovery. And at the end, he said, we're making this film because this film isn't about swimming. This film is about recovery. And I said, if you want to take it, that route, then let's do it. And again, for a little bit, I was a little nervous about the anonymity piece of things and the tradi traditions of AA, which is AA is the method that, I, that I've used to get sober and stay sober. And in talking to him, I realized how unaccessible stories like mine are to the regular people. Because in my mind, I am just a regular guy. I love life. I love swimming and I love everything about it. And I do embrace uh, who I am as an alcoholic to a great degree. And I just thought back to when I was really struggling and I thought about how different it might have been for me if I had someone to look up to like myself who had already gone through 
these crazy changes in their life and transformed everything around it. And I said, we got to do this. We got to make this movie and we got to make it awesome. Now, here we are a year and a half later and the name of the movie is Swim Tough, How I Swam My Way out of the bottle. And and the best part about it is I'm not even a great swimmer. Like I'm an average swimmer, but through my addiction and through my sobriety, I have learned so much about your mental wall that you can get to in your life. And I've learned how to break through it. And that has made me very resilient, not only in the water, but in life. And that is another reason why I'm so thankful for this journey that I've been on. Yeah, I remember you saying in a podcast interview that you were using so much mental energy plotting, am I going to change, am I going to put some vodka in this water bottle and how will I hide these beers and how many beers can I have when I'm back in the house? And I share that with you and the fact that when we have to stop thinking about these things and suddenly we've got all this energy and all this mental space that we can direct into something so much more positive like you're doing. And you're such a, a shining example, Ben. I think so many people, young people as well, are going to see this movie and think, wow. Because I think sobriety gets a pretty bad rap. It needs a new image. <laughs> when I had to give up drinking because of my health, I was expecting it to be such a dull and grey and miserable place. But I thought, I've got to stop drinking or I'll die. So I'll just have to live in this rather grey place. But it's turned out, of course, to be anything but that. So well done. I think the, the movie is a great idea. So when's the release date? I, I will have a showing down in Atlanta, where I'm from. And then I will also be having a showing in Newport, Rhode Island, where I did all the swims and where I've raised all the money for Clean Ocean Access, the environmental group that I've been swimming for. So it will be trickling out quietly. Uh, and if people want to see how to view it, it will be on my website at swimtough.com with all the show dates. And eventually, we are hoping for it to be picked up by a streaming service like a Netflix or an Amazon or a Hulu. And it will be much more accessible after that. Yeah, Netflix is a great idea. They've got Wim Hof, isn't it? The cold water swimmer. He's got a, a movie on Netflix, I think. So let's hope they, they pick it up. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at tribesober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at tribesober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, if someone's listening to this, Ben, they are deep in their drinking problem, they feel trapped, they know they've got a problem, they don't know how to get out of it. What would you say to them? How should they start? 
number one, it's nothing to be ashamed of. And there are so many people amongst us who you would have no idea struggled or continue to struggle with the same exact thing that you are struggling with. And it's so important to reach out to those people and ask for help because we as humans don't do that enough. We don't ask for help. We take it all into ourselves. And by asking for help, you in turn are going to not only be helping yourself, but all of those people around you and the future people that you in turn will help. And the piece that scared me the most was having a life without alcohol because my social life was so dependent upon it. And I've found for me that to be feeling real feelings and not have these fake kind of muted ideas of myself or of the people around me, to be feeling these real awesome feelings, it's such an amazing thing that we can finally be human again and feel good about ourselves. Because it isn't until you give it up that you realize how much that monkey has been on your back and how much it has really been bringing you down. And only good can come of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I had a podcast guest who described her problem as carrying a backpack of rocks around with her. And when she gave it up, she felt she could take off that backpack. I thought that was a nice analogy because we we don't realize how much it's weighing us down until we stop. So thank you for that. Let's finish off with your top three benefits. Just pick out three quick benefits of sobriety to inspire that person that's listening. I would say, number one, my energy is through the roof and it is all positive. I have a tendency to always be on the go in a positive way without any of those negative intentions. So number two... I would say I have such a great appreciation for really good coffee. That is like my go-to thing. I love a great cup of coffee in the morning and in the afternoon, whenever, it doesn't matter. And along with that, I can drink coffee because I can sleep like a baby now. I wake up in the morning so well-rested feeling like a million dollars ready to attack the day. And I remember when I was drinking, just opening up my eyes, not wanting to move, saying, oh, why go on with this day? This is awful. And instead, I get to wake up excited, energized, and ready to dominate. Thank you so much for the inspiration, Ben, and for your valuable insights. Let's pull out some key points. Ben was an anxious child and he started drinking initially as a social activity, but it did help him with his anxiety as well. Over the years, that escalated to more secretive and excessive drinking. 
he became a teacher and coped with stress through a work-hard-play-hard lifestyle involving heavy drinking. Like many of us, he was completely in denial about the severity of his alcohol issue. He developed a complicated and secretive routine to hide his alcohol consumption from his wife. He would volunteer to go to the grocery store. He would buy a bottle of vodka, two bottles of vitamin water and mix the water with the alcohol. He also avoided a record of the liquor store purchases by obtaining a cashback. Ben described his rock bottom. He had a severe panic attack and ended up in hospital in the emergency room. However, he couldn't receive immediate treatment because of his blood alcohol level being so high. He described how he looked at the nurse, looked at his wife and realised his secret was out and this was the turning point. He decided there and then to go to rehab. And that was a crucial step in his journey, of course. He spent five days in detox and five weeks in rehab, learning how to navigate a world that felt foreign to him without alcohol. Post-rehab, Ben maintained a strong support system, including a psychiatrist who remains his psychiatrist to this day. He actively engaged in his recovery attending AA meetings and committing to a schedule that included daily meetings and swimming sessions. Like many of us, Ben regards his sobriety as a gift. Recognising the real, authentic joy and connection he now experiences with his family. The contrast between the facade of happiness during his drinking days and the genuine emotions in sobriety has reinforced the value of his recovery. Ben's venture into swimming, initially inspired by a sponsor, became a therapeutic outlet. His dedication to learning and mastering swimming, including open water swims, provided a space for mental processing. He focused on his love for swimming and engaged in long-distance swims. He was approached by a well-known film producer to work on a documentary called Swim Tough, his decision to participate in the documentary about his journey stems from a desire to make stories of recovery more accessible. The film, which is titled Swim Tough, How I Swam My Way Out of the Bottle, aims to highlight the transformative power of recovery rather than just focus on swimming. I asked Ben for a message to anyone listening to this who's struggling he encourages anyone who's struggling with addiction to reach out for help without shame. He emphasised the importance of seeking support. When I asked him for the benefits of sobriety, he reflected on the positive changes such as increased energy, a genuine appreciation for simple pleasures like good coffee and the ability to sleep soundly. You can follow Ben via his website, which is swimtough.com. Let me spell that. So it's swim, and then his name is spelt T-U-F-F. So swimtough.com. I will put it in the show notes. So thank you, Ben. Now let me finish by reading out a couple of messages from our chat rooms. This one comes from Mary in the UK. Hi all. 
So it's my birthday today. The plan was to be sober, but I'm not. I had a bottle of wine by myself. I'm so tired of day one. You've no idea. I fully understand that going back to day one means doing the hardest bit again and again. But I am here to account for myself. Yes, I've been in a challenging period, but it's no excuse. Yes, I failed today, but I'm not giving up. Hell, I'm only 48 and I believe I can still make it. All I can do is my best. Pardon me for blipping today. However, I trust that tomorrow is another day and we'll start at day one. A reply came straight in from Australia, from Trish. Hi Mary, you haven't failed lovely. You're here trying again and that's success. You've learnt a lot by slipping, mainly that it's not worth it and that by next birthday you want to be happily alcohol free. And you can be. So happy birthday. Give yourself the best gift of your life and get back to your sobriety journey. We're all here for you. So Mary, well done for being accountable and thank you Trish for your lovely reply. If you'd like to join our amazing tribe who encourage and support each other 24-7, then just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. Don't forget to take a look at our dry January fundraiser. It opened on the 1st of December. You can get online and community support. Just make a small donation to a good cause and the support will be on its way to you. Go to tribesober.com and look for the Dry January Challenge. That's it from me. I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard. It takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards. And that's just for starters. So go to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.